I know that's putting you in a difficult situation. Oh, but do that to her. Okay. It's just she could have. I know. She, she could have really know. hurt someone. And I, I don't know how often she does this, but in the way that she's acting towards you, that's not fair. Um, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. No, it's a, you, you don't have to apologize to me. It's not fair. I mean, you don't, don't, know you don't even, do. well, you don't even have to do anything written. I... And welcome, Happy New Year, to everybody. It is January the 2nd, 2024, and I am Dr. Paul. Welcome to Worldviews, where we defend the faith, destroy the fakes, and equip the saints. Again, welcome. And what you just heard is another worldview, a sad one. Although there's really only one that's happy. But those uh, young people out there, they get caught up in the drug and alcohol world. Yep, that's what you heard. Part of what I have been doing in the interim, amid my recovery from the goop, uh, I, I got the opportunity to watch hours of police video of people being stupid, and some of it is just, just downright heartbreaking. That was a young lady who was a friend to a drunk driving friend. She might have been maybe 19 or 20 years old. Maybe. And they were out on the median and the police showed up and the young lady who apparently got a phone call from her friend who had, well, decided to get drunk and go out and wreck her car. Run into a few things, made the car disabled, and her friend didn't know what to do. But once again, this stems from a worldview that says that that kind of stuff is okay. I mean, you hear the commercials from time to time. You know, drink in moderation. And I'm thinking, that's stupid. Is A young person, what, 19, 20, 21 years old, they don't know what moderation is. So they go out to do that and... <laughs> She, she was fortunate. The gal who wrecked her car ran into a concrete barrier and tore off the, uh, the, the police said that ripped away the oil pan and left the car disabled uh, alongside a concrete median. She was fortunate. She's still alive. A lot of people don't, or a lot of young people don't end up that way. They end up dead. And we tell them just drink in moderation. You know, you'll be just fine. No, you're not going to be just fine. You know, the only way that people not do stupid things like that is they don't drink at all. Now, some people say, well, you know, we we could party and do our thing and we're just going to be fine. You know what? Of the hundreds, I don't, maybe a hundred videos that I saw of drunk people doing stupid things, clearly they thought the same thing. I can go out and... Party hardy, get in the car, go out and wreck a few things, and it's going to be somebody else's fault or not my fault at all. And it didn't work, not one time. And I don't know what it is, you know, I, I agree with some people that say, you know, uh, people are just some people, and it really kind of goes along with what, what we've been talking about in this whole series on the Christian Constitution, the Book of Romans, going back to chapter 1. There are some people that are just naturally ugly. They're bitter, inflamed, 
nasty, foul mouth, and then you throw in some alcohol and they're really over the top. And without getting into, you know, uh, personal confession on the part of my family, I've never been a drunk myself, been drunk one time, never got ugly, never got arrested, but did not enjoy it at all. Uh, but you know, I can feel for some families to get broken by this because I come out of one myself. So anyway, but it's a worldview that is acceptable. And I'm telling you, it is contrary to what God teaches in his book. You know, the, the book of Proverbs talks about this th- very thing, you know, that strong drink is raging and those that are that are deceived by it, are not the the sharpest knives in the drawer. So I guess the caveat here is, if if you're going to do that stuff, you better be ready for the consequences, because inevitably they always end up bad. I have never known of a drunken family that ever stayed together, and I know of several people who have lost their lives over it. So let's turn to more cheerier things here. As we talk about the, yes, yes, cheer. <laughs> yes, we finally, <laughs> okay, okay, already. I know, I know, I know, it's six minutes in and you're, I'm finally talking about the Book of Romans. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> anyway, we're in Romans chapter 10 as we are on the backside of uh, the, the Christian constitution here. Uh, We're learning about what happened to Israel, and that's kind of where Paul took us in chapter 9 and uh, showed people, you know, that that it's God's choice, that, you know, as to who's going to be, you know, redeemed and put into his family, and that because of what Israel did, it opened up the door for the Gentiles. But still, the Gentiles had to come by the faith principle, not by law. The, the Gentiles never had the law. The Jews did, and they blew it because they lacked the faith principle. They did not exercise the faith principle. They thought, you know what? We could do this based on our own works, on our own effort. And if we just do this and this and this and that ritual and whatever, and it made God sick. They want that. God doesn't want your heavy-duty works and and like, especially you're doing it with a lack of faith. You're not trusting God in the first place. And so this left the nation of Israel bereft of God's blessing. Well, in chapter 10, Paul picks this up again. And really, chapter 10, you know, I don't know if you know anything about the Romans Road, uh, it's sometimes an evangelistic tool. It's one that I used many years ago, but you know, the more that I understood the context, I'm going, eh, I don't know about this. Uh, people pick cherry picking verses here and there without explaining the context. Uh, I don't know, but some people use a lot of the Romans or get a lot of the Romans road out of chapter 10, the book of Romans. Uh, we're not going to go down the Romans road. We're going to explain the whole context here by first reading Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, and I would recommend that if you are a brand new listener and you want to follow along and you really want to learn something and not be uh, kind of oblivious as to what's going on, that you get your Bible to get it out and follow along. And while you're doing that, let me me, uh, kind of say... Or give give a shout out here to three new followers uh, while people get the Bibles out to uh, Isam, Yusuf, Farid, Farid. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for being a follower. And then uh, UCA Easy TZ. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, welcome to the program and uh, Jamok uh, Ajabola. I guess that's your name. I know I get a lot of foreign. Followers that are specifically from the Middle East and, and Africa. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Thanks. Thanks for joining and following along here. Now, if you've got your Bible, 
Uh, turn real quickly to Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. And let's read this through first, and then we'll add some meat to the bones. Uh, Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then Paul goes on, he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then in verse 12 and 13, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's go back to verse 1 here. Like I said, let's put a little meat on the bones here. Not that we're going to put a whole lot, because as I've said before, uh, less is more here. We could get into all of the you know Greek nuances here and grammar and the like, and really uh, get deep down in the weeds and cause you to go to sleep, and that's the, not the object here. So let's just go with a less is more and uh, start out by saying, you know, Paul calls them brothers. He's talking about his Jewish brothers here, uh, meaning he still, uh, he cares for them. He talked about this in, in verse 9 when he, when he, opened, op when he opened up uh, that new dialogue by saying, uh, for I am, uh, uh, he says, uh, wait a second, I'm speaking the truth of Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He, it's his way of saying these people are lost. And that ought to be our concern as Christians, whether they're our actual physical brothers and sisters, Mothers and fathers, our, our acquaintances, our colleagues and workers, and the, that should be our heart's desire, that they would be saved. Rescued. Because you see, every person, as Paul has pointed out throughout the first nine chapters in the book of Romans, is a natural person. They're lost. They're under God's wrath. And I don't think we completely grasp that in many instances as we turn a blind eye to the lost. We're not willing to get in the—we don't want to get in the fight. You say, well, what do you mean to fight? It's a battle for the soul today, as it has always been. The devil wants to keep people in bondage and see them cast into hell. That's the bottom line. And we as Christians should be on the polar opposite of the spectrum here. Part of what I did here in the last few days, and it was just by God's providence, uh, was that I went to the mall with my wife. We go walking around trying to stay in shape. <laughs> Sometimes that's easier said than done. But as we were out walking around, I noticed there was a young black guy sitting on a bench and there were two white guys in white shirts 
and it placards on their on their shirt shirt uh, cover. And I was thinking about it. Oh, I bet I knew who they are because I've had those types of individuals over at my house before to talk to them. And lo and behold, guess who they were? They were the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. And they were they had accosted this guy. And my wife and I, we walked around the mall. There's an upper and lower deck. And I said, you know, maybe they'll still be there by the time we get back. Because if they are, guess who's going to get a visit? They are from me. <laughs> so we walked around. It takes us about, uh, the mall's pretty big, pretty big place. Upper and lower deck. Probably takes us a little over 20 minutes to get around the whole mall. But lo and behold, 20-some minutes later, they were still there. And you know what? I've had the Mormons over to my house before. I've talked to them in Salt Lake City, the, the big Kahuna temple there. And I've talked to them elsewhere, online. Just a, I probably have talked, I don't know, 100 different sets of missionaries over the course of my life. So I knew exactly what they were saying. I knew what they were talking about. They were, you know, lauding the wonders of Joseph Smith. And yours truly got involved in the middle of that, stepped in there, and asked the guy's name. His name is Marquise. And Got their names, Elder Bob and Elder, I don't know what their names were, Elder whomever, which I think is a, a big joke. And I let them know that, not 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 to be unkind, but one was talking about, oh, you keep calling us Mormons. So I said, oh, well, that's what I'm used to calling you. And, you know, the early Mormons didn't have a problem with that. Well, it's, a, well, it's disrespectful. Well, I find you calling yourselves to be elders to be disrespectful, and that shut down that Mormon. Anyway, the, we talked for 40 minutes. 45 minutes. And those Mormons' eyes were as big as saucers. Like, good grief, where did this guy come from? The guy's a maniac. He's, revo- re- he's revealing things about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit that are completely contrary to what we believe, what we teach. And they come out of the Bible, and I short-circuited the whole thing. That's having a heart's desire for the lost. I didn't want this young black guy, who I could have talked about why he was black, according to Mormon theology, and really caused problems for those Mormons. But I decided I wanted to make this a theological discussion here. I wanted that young man not to be swept away in this cult. So I told him the truth. My heart's desire was for him to be saved. And though there was no profession of faith at that time, I am absolutely certain after 40, 45 minutes of revealing what the Bible has to say about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and what it takes to be saved, and where the Spirit comes in and indwells the person, as we talked about in the previous chapters, here in the book of Romans, that that young man had at least a fighting chance to, you know, ward off the devil, so to speak. Whether it did or didn't, I don't know. But my heart's desire for Marquise and those two Mormon missionaries is that they would be saved. This is what the Apostle Paul felt towards his towards his Jewish brethren. My heart's desire and prayer to God. For them is that they may be rescued. Rescued from not only their own sin, but from the wrath of God that is waiting for them should they pass from this life into the next one, unforgiven, unregenerate, and having to pay the sin debt for all of eternity. That's that's some serious uh, love on the part of the Apostle Paul. Do we share that today? In some camps around the world, yeah, that's true. There are Christians that have the love of God in them and are willing to share the gospel with others. A lot of people who claim to be Christians don't even know what the gospel is. I have, in fact, one other little encounter that I had recently. <laughs> Let me shake it in my head. This guy is ripping Who's he ripping? He was ripping on. Uh, oh, he was dr- ripping on Donald Trump the supporters, and how effing stupid they were. 
and he claimed to be a minister in the Methodist church. <laughs> I, I countered him. What kind of minister uses F-bombs to rip on people who want to, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't Donald Trump, it was uh, Governor Abbott, that's who it was, the governor, governor of the state of Texas, who rips on one of God's appointees, especially when God has set him up and is doing what is godly for a change. And we don't get a lot of that in politics these days, where people who are governors and senators and what we don't get a lot of godliness in politics. But at least in this one instance, Governor Abbott was doing something that was godly, trying to stem the tide of stem the tide of illegal immigration into the into the state of Texas, into, into the United States. And this guy's using F-bombs as a so-called minister. Not much love going on there. But they do that kind of stuff. So after I challenged Mr. Potty Mouth numerous times, the guy folded like a house of cards and went away. I don't know whatever happened to him. But you know, that's what Christians need to do. If you know the truth, if you know the gospel, share it. Share it, defend the faith. Destroy the potty mouths. Because they have a conscience that God has instilled in them. And depending on what you say, where you're not the offense, but God offends them, pricks them by the Spirit, they just might turn around or shut up with being a bunch of demoniacs. Because as, as Paul says here in verse number two, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. This guy, <laughs> the guy who's just mentioned here, the minister claims, you know, he knew something about God. They have this zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And we're not talking about just book knowledge. We're talking about the deep-seated, intimate knowledge about God. This, this biblical standard. I remember not long ago where I made that comment about biblical Christians to somebody, he said, what's that? Now, that was just, who, what, what is a biblical Christian? A person who has this deep-seated knowledge of God based upon his revelation that he has given in his book right here. See, the, the Jews that Paul is talking to, he calls his brothers here. He said, you know, they, they have a zeal for God, just like they did in the Old Testament. Yeah, there are ups and, flow, ebbs and flows and ups and downs throughout history. Some of the times they were on, much of the time they were not. And that's why God kept sending them prophets, spokespersons, to try to turn them around, get them to repent, giving them a, a direct revelation from God whereby they could you know, admit or confess their sin, and they get back on the right road. No, they have this zeal for God based upon what they thought God wanted. In many cases, the, the priests and the prophets in the Old Testament were preaching lies to the people, misleading them. And probably one of the first ones that did this because Moses gave the law, and Paul's going to allude to Moses or had alluded here, in, in Romans, uh, to uh, you know, Moses, the one who gave the law, was Aaron himself. The people started to whine and complain, give us a God to worship. And so what happens? He ended with a golden calf. And that didn't go well either. But that's the propensity of so many who are zealous for God. In this case, you know, substituting the creation for the creator, and we do this all the time. But they make that substitute, and it's born out of ignorance. Either just plainly being naive of what God has revealed, or intentionally violating the will of God. 
We know God forbids this kind of activity, building a golden calf, or in today's parlance, you know, we set up our own idols. We talked about these before, whether the money or sex or property or whatever. We, we prop that up to replace God, and then, then we bow down and worship that. That's not God's special revelation. But people ignore what God has to say about those types of things so that they can set themselves up as their own little deities. I'm reading a book right now dealing with deconstruction, something I've talked about in this program before. And the person I've dealt with, maybe I'll get some audio on her sometime. And the farce that she has created for the purpose of worshiping herself. The deconstructionists have set themselves up as little deities. And that's exactly what the atheists and the agnostics were. They're, I mean, they're, they don't have a zeal for God, but, but you know, many people are religious in the respect that they have some kind of deity that they worship, but it's not according to God's revelation. They want what they want. They, they're, they're making the image of God after them and not submitting to the image that God has created in them to worship him in spirit and in truth. So Paul says in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and I, I take this as ignoring what God has to say, not that they're stupid or naive. I, I think they know. We've talked about this before. Back in Romans chapter 1, where God has revealed himself to natural man, there is no person who doesn't know something about the Creator. No person. There is no person who is, they like to call themselves not religious. There is no such thing. Why? Because God has created every human being in his image. What they do, though, by ignoring God, is to suppress that truth. They don't want to hear it. They want it their way. It's like they get it at Burger King or McDonald's or whatever. Your favorite fast food restaurant. I want it my way. God says, it's not going to be that way. You're going to live in on my earth and plan on coming to my heaven. You're going to do it my way. Because if we leave it up to you, <laughs> it's going to turn out totally messed up. And we see that today in all walks of life. Today, it's all messed up. So Paul says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Well, what was the righteousness of God? Well, we got to go back to chapter 1, where it's first discussed. Paul said, for in it, which was the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel, which is analogous or in line with the person of Jesus, has talked about Jesus in the same context there, is the righteousness of God. And those who live by faith obey that. They acknowledge that. But not the Jews. Well, they were off on their own thing. Like many people today are off doing their own thing. And so what do they do? Paul says they, they seek to establish their own righteousness. I like this here. Not being rude, but the word here being, you know, the Paul, the Paul uses here to seek their own righteousness is the word, the English word we get for being an idiot. <laughs> now, once again, being an idiot doesn't mean you're stupid. It means you're doing your own thing. You're being your own idol, which is probably, you know, if you really want to carry it out to the logical end, is being stupid. But they're establishing their own stupid, idiotic righteousness, which means it's not righteous at all. It's at the polar opposite end of the scale. Because, you know, when you know or you ignore God's warnings as well as his admonitions, 
as to what is right and wrong, and you know the consequences, and you keep heading down that road where you end up facing eternal damnation, that is pretty idiotic. It almost reminds me of getting back to this little girl I was telling you about at the start here. The, she hops in the car, she's drunk. She goes out, wrecks her car, could have killed herself. And a friend comes along, she didn't know what to do. And a lot of times people don't even know how to help them. Like, she didn't. She didn't know how to help her friend. Because, see, unless her friend's heart is broken, if she remains alive long enough, she's going to be going down this road of destruction. Shortened life, maybe a terrible accident, cirrhosis of the liver, some kind of physical malady or whatever, broken family. The, the consequences of being idiotic and ignoring God's righteousness are, are almost infinite. God will just keep giving you over to that until you're finally destroyed. It's only when you turn around by God's grace that there is a rescue that takes place. Paul says they did not submit to God's righteousness. And we've talked about that before. The Jews, even today, they're not going to submit to the gospel unless God turns them around, changes their heart, gives them the capability because they're unable otherwise. They're lost to the darkness of their sin. And a lot of times, even today, the, the, the Jews or even the Gentiles, they're, per, they're happy as a lark amid their sin. Oh, they're thinking they're doing God some kind of favor by being religious in their own way. But no, they're not submitting to God's righteousness. God's righteousness amounts to faith in his son, whereby a person is regenerate. And Paul's going to get into more detail here in a second. In fact, the, the reason that the law was even given was to drive a person to the person of Jesus Christ, to see their inability to redeem themselves, to make themselves righteous. And that's why he's going to write here in verse 4 of chapter 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. <laughs> it's, it's probably been, golly, I don't know, uh, 30 years ago almost that I wrote a very paper on this in seminary, on this very verse, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But does that mean the law is has been abolished? A lot of people, a lot of Christians, believe that, that the law has been abolished. Now, that's what the word end means. Uh, no, that's not what it means at all. The end here, the Greek word is telos, doesn't mean end in this particular context, as in there is no longer a law to follow, because as I have pointed out before, and I think probably most Christians would agree with me. You don't go out and worship idols. You don't uh, uh, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You don't go out and murder people. Don't commit adultery. Don't lust after your neighbor's uh, house and his household and steal and all that kind of stuff. That's just basic, you know, Ten Commandments 101. Most Christians would say, yeah, that's, yep, we're, we don't do those things because that would offend God. Well, that means that the word end here has a completely different connotation than just ceasing to exist, that it's been abrogated or abolished in some way where it's no longer in effect. No, a better interpretation of what Paul is saying here, because of what I just said here a second ago about what the intent of the law was to be, to lead a person to Christ, is to say that for Christ is the goal, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's the same thing that Paul would tell the Galatians, and I've called this the, the mini-constitution, uh, when he talked about, you know, the, the purpose of the law, being a tutor, uh, being a schoolmaster that instructs the 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 Christian, on what the law was supposed to be about, what grace is supposed to be about, what salvation was supposed to be about, it all culminated. It all had its goal in the person of Jesus Christ. No other person 
was given that accolade. And no other person in history has ever made that claim. No other person has been pointed to in that respect. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not, not Krishna, not Jim Jones, not Joseph Smith, not any of those false characters was ever given this accolade was ever given this uh, this goal that he's the end of the law for righteousness. Righteousness with God. Because if you're right with God, that means you're out from underneath the curse of God. And that's part of the reason why Paul would write previously in chapter 8, there is now no longer any condemnation to those who are in Christ. He's the, he's the goal. And if once you're in, there is no longer any more condemnation. But it's only for those who believe. And who and who would they be? To everyone? Does that mean everybody in the United States? Is kind of lift up everybody in the United States. <laughs> everybody in the world. Does that mean that everybody just can kind of uh, sit around, uh, roast some marshmallows and say, uh, I don't know if I want to believe that or not. No. Those who believe are those whom God has drawn unto himself. Those who God has given the capability to believe. Uh, one, one place I like to turn to on a regular basis to, to support this is what uh, John wrote over in his gospel. Because he says over there, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. Not you, not me. It's not a, an act of your own will. It's not of your own volition, not of your own effort, not of your own works. It's what God does. In fact, Paul had already talked about that previously here in the book of Romans as well. So unless a person is drawn into God and God regenerates them by putting the Holy Spirit in them and persuading them to accept what God has done, they'll never believe. They'll always be agnostic without knowledge. They'll always be unbelievers, and God will leave them to their devices. In fact, they're the, those are the ones that are going to be saying, Jesus Christ is my purpose. And Paul Paul would even talk about that later on, you know, lauding you know, the, the wonders of being a Christian. He, he forsake all, he considered everything to be dung compared to winning what Jesus Christ was to him and in life itself. And then he's going to prop up here in verse 5, or return to Moses as an example. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, you stop and think about that. You go, uh, well, does that mean it was possible to keep the law unto salvation? Uh, once again, the purpose of the law was to drive a person to Christ, to trust and believe in God unwaveringly, without hesitation. And yet here, it says Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Uh, the law here... Once again, being the righteousness of God is found in the person of Jesus. Uh, but Moses, Paul says he writes, it's a present active verb, which is kind of confusing in a way, because Moses is not still writing. We have the law. But I think he's saying, you know what, this is something that Moses gave in the past. And that if a person was going to try to base his life not only this one in the which he is living and breathing the air, but in the life to come, he's going to have to obey those commandments. Not just part of them. Not just 90% of them. All of them. In fact, I have pointed this out before. James, the half-brother of Jesus, makes this point over in James chapter 2 and verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. It's a composite whole. You can't just keep 
one law to the absence of another one, to the negligence of another one, to the disobedience of another one. You've got to keep them all, and you have to keep them perfectly. Why? Because God is perfect. And I would venture to say that most people don't even know what the whole law entails. They might get the Ten Commandments, maybe, but there were 613 laws just in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus would come along later. He's being challenged by the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, which one's the most most important. You know, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But who even does that? How is that even possible? We've, get, we've been given the command, and only it only pertains to those who are Christians, not to those who are not and are trying to work their way into heaven. But let's say that it was a, a means by which to enter God's realm. Does anybody keep or obey or love God with all their heart, soul, and mind? Is it even possible living in a corrupt, corrupted sin nature or living with a sin nature? Is is it even possible? The answer is no. And yet the law was given by Moses saying, you know what, you want to base your life on that, go ahead, give it a try, but you're going to fail at the end. But he says in verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, don't don't, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. This comes from the Old Testament. And when, when Paul is writing here, you know, saying that righteousness is, is based on faith, uh, don't say in your heart who, uh, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. He was talking about the law. If you go back over to to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, <clears throat> you have this instruction to Israel. In fact, he really kind of goes back to chapter 28, but the quote comes from chapter 30. In chapter 28, uh, Moses is telling, or God is telling Moses to tell the people, uh, these are going to be the conditions for the time when you get ready to go into the promised land. If you do this and this and this, uh, then you'll be blessed. If you don't do this and this and this, then you'll be cursed. And then he talks about returning after you've been cursed. He says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have said before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. We know that Israel and uh, Israel and Judah both ended up in captivity. One went to Assyria, one went to Babylon. But he says, where the Lord has driven you because of part of your disobedience, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you, with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And then he goes on down in verses uh, 11 through 13, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Here we go. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that so you can do it. The Apostle Paul has adopted this particular passage and applied it here in the book of Romans to the person, or actually the law and the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is acting in the place of the law. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead? He says they're not there. Christ is not in either place. You don't have to go looking for it. It's right here. In fact, he goes on and he says... 
But what does the word say? The word is near. You know, we know that Jesus is the word and that the word is God. The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. That's the means by where a person is justified before God. It's not by the law. Christ has been substituted for the law. You don't have to go looking for him. You don't have to demand that he come down or, or up. The word is near you. In fact, to many today that are listening right now, the word of God is near you as well. It's not by God's, or not by accident, I should say, but by God's providence that you're even listening today. Is God calling you? Is God in your heart? Tweaking it, saying, I need to repent. I need to turn around. I need to proclaim faith in Christ and not in my own efforts. Is it time to say, you know what? I'm going to get out of that car. I mean, I may be drunk and stupid like the uh, like Prof D here, Dr. Paul, talked about before with this girl in her, you know, the drunken girl in her vehicle. I may be like that now, and maybe it's time to turn around before I go off the edge. Because it says here in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The confession part is that you're agreeing with what God has to say about righteousness, about being forgiven, about being regenerate. And it's an outward confession. I find it interesting that when, you know, some people say, you know what, you need to keep your religion to yourself. Because, you know, when it comes to religion, that's all perfectly private. And we shouldn't be outside the four walls of our house or maybe our church or our synagogue or whatever. We should not be out there, you know, shoving this down people's throats. That way they can turn around and shove their religion down people's throats. You know, the kind that leads people to death and destruction, to meaninglessness in life, and being totally immoral, or you're claiming that you're the, you know, harbinger of all that is true and wholesome and virtuous. Yeah, they can do that. But when it comes to your, no, you can't. No, that's not what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Because you see, when it starts there, that outward confession, then it starts to spread. This is how Christianity spread in the beginning and did for a long time. People told others about the wondrousness, the peace and security that comes with being in Christ, the message that Jesus is God's righteousness, and that if you just put your faith in him, you'll be saved. He says you confess with your mouth outwardly and believe in your heart, that's inward, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How's that get in there? God puts it there. You're not going to believe that otherwise. I remember years of being kind of quasi-religious. I believed in God. That's what my mama told me. But then it made me a Christian. It was only, you know, I mean, it took years later when a friend came and told me about the, the person of Jesus Christ, what the gospel was, and then I became a Christian then. God was drawing me at that time. I didn't know it. And in 2020 hindsight, I really didn't get a full grasp of it until years later, even after Bible college in some instances. <laughs> That's been forever to go, a year ago too. Forever and a year ago. Well, that makes sense. But the point is, you may not grasp your regeneration, your spiritual rebirth until years later. 
but outward signs of it, you're going to be willing to say, Jesus is Lord. That means nobody else is. Nothing else is. It means this person has preeminence in your life, that you're going to live a life that is pleasing to God by faith. Not by your works. Now, your works are going to be outward manifestations of that faith, but it's not going to make you more faithful in a salvific way. You're already saved. And that if you believe in your heart, this is this unwavering part, that, that God has raised him from the dead. And the Apostle Paul points out, you know, that if God didn't do that, that your faith is vain. It's, it means nothing. You know, all of these other religious figures that we hear about from time to time, whether we're talking about Islam or, once again, Buddhism or Krishna or some of that kind of stuff, some other religious leaders, Gandhi, whatever, they're dead. They have never been raised from the dead. They're in their tombs. Jesus came forth from the grave by God's power. By God's grace, he was the one who said, you know, I've overcome death. I've overcome the world. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other worldview. And that's why I say, you know, when it comes to this broadcast or, you know, if you go over and read any of my articles or whatever on the Christian Apologetics Project, I say, you know what, we're going to defend the Christian worldview. And we're going to destroy all the other ones. Or we're at least going to expose them. Because they're falsehoods. They have no Savior. They have no one that's come forth from the, from the grave, and no one has over, overcome death, and no one has ever put a person in a good standing with God by shedding his blood. Jesus did, though. Paul then goes on and he explains here in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified. That's where God has set up his camp, so to speak. He put faith in your heart. If you're a Christian and you're capable of trusting God, and because you're justified, that means you have a legal standing with God, one that is in Christ because of your relationship with him. It can occur nowhere else. Then he says, and with the mouth one confesses, or is in agreement with what God has to say about the whole salvific process, about what Paul has been talking about from the beginning, that we're sinners in need of salvation, that without him, you know, that, uh, what does he say here, you know, for, for all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, that's everybody that what it takes to be saved is faith and faith alone. It's interesting in a, in a way here because uh, Paul says here, uh, confess you with your mouth. He, he kind of juxtaposes the two, two ideas here in verses 9 and 10 between believing and confessing. He, first he says you confess you with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, actually, I guess he doesn't juxtapose them. I guess he just kind of adds to it here, explains it further. And with a mouth, one confesses and is saved. Once again, this is not keeping it to yourself. Christianity is not a private enterprise. It is something to be shared with others. Starting with God, I am a sinner. I believe Jesus was raised from the dead for my behalf to, to forgive me for that sin, to Give me the capability of acknowledging what God has done, and then the Spirit comes in and regenerates me. I'm a new creature. We get to start all over again and be what God intended me to be. And then he says in verse 11, for the Scripture says, and I always like this when, he's, when Paul uses this kind of verb, he says, the Scripture says, because when you go back to the reference where this was taken over in the book of Isaiah, it's the Lord that says, Anytime you pick up the Bible and you read these types of messages or even the Bible as a whole that God has decreed to be inspired, it's God talking to you. It's not just uh, 
words on a, on a printed page. There is a personal aspect to what God's message has to say. This scripture says everyone, or as it says here in the Greek, to those that are believing, as I've explained here a second ago, those whom God has regenerated and brought into his family, those who believe in him will not be put to shame. By who? The world? No. I mean, the world's going to try to do that anyway. Oh, you're just believing the flying spaghetti monster. Oh, Jesus is a myth. Oh, you believe in this uh, uh, this sky daddy that's up there and all this kind of stuff. Oh, they're going to try to shame you regardless. No, the shame part here is before God Almighty. Everyone who believes, trusts God, will not be put to shame by God. Because you know what the polar opposite is going to be? Shame before God as people stand before him and give account of their lives. A lot of people are going to be that are boasting today, I'm going to, you know, go to go to hell and have a party. And I'm going to stand and tell God, I'm going to give him the what for, you know, if there is even a judgment at all, which I doubt there's going to be because I'm just going to end up in a hole. No, you're going to stand before the Lord. And if you have not been redeemed, you're going to stand there long-faced, sobbing, weeping, gnashing your teeth, regretting everything you said by way of mocking God and his son. And Paul concludes here in verse 12 and 13 by saying, there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek because the same standard applies to all. Why? Because it's the same Lord who is over all. And he's going to bestow his riches Upon them. Now, what kind of riches could he be talking about? Well, this is where we go back over to, you know, chapter 2 and verse 4, as, as a kind of in a short, encapsulated way, where Paul is, is chastising the lost man. Do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his this kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance is even a part of the riches. You're given the capability of changing your mind, your hardened heart. But you can't do it on your own. There's no distinction. It's the same for all who call upon him. And it's interesting that God calls the lost into his family. And then they turn around and echo that back, calling upon God thanking him for what he has done, thanking him for his salvation for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those whom God has chosen, those whom God has predestined, those whom God has justified, those whom God has glorified will be saved. Is that you? Have you done that? It's not too late if you're listening right now. It'll be too late if you close your eyes in death. And I hope that doesn't happen. I'm, my prayer for you, as Paul prayed to the to the uh, for for his brethren, for his Jewish brethren, is that if you're not saved, that you would be, that God would give you the capability of calling upon Him. Ask God to forgive you by first stating that you're a sinner and that you believe that God sent his son for you. That God put him on the cross, shed his blood in your behalf, but that he is alive today. Did you, did you receive that? Did you acknowledge that? If you'll do that, then God will save you too. He'll make you a new creature. And if you'll do that, I'd love to hear from you. Write me. Podcast at capro.info And so we're at the end of another podcast here. I hope you enjoy this. Share it with others. 
We talk about the Christian Constitution as one of the greatest books in the Bible. Till next time, you take care. God bless you. Look forward to speaking with you again.